episode 10 of the IntelliCast podcast brought to you by EMI Research Solutions. This is Adam Jolly. Joining me as always is my co-host, Brian Lamar. Still winter. Can you believe we made it to episode 10? Double digits, baby. Can't stop us now. We haven't been fired yet. This snowball's rolling downhill. Um, first, some housekeeping. Uh, if you'd like to reach out to us, talk to us about topics for the podcast, if you'd love to be a guest on the podcast, any Mount Rushmore ideas, rant ideas, um, anything you just really want to hear about, reach out to us at IntelliCast at EMI dash rs.com um, you can follow emi on twitter uh, i think we do a pretty good job of tweeting out things that are going on in the industry not just things that are about emi um, and also doing some live tweeting of any events that we're at and that is emi underscore research uh, my personal twitter is adam jolly all one word and brian what's your twitter you know i, I think i'm gonna take the under on the twitter based upon our interview with interview today which you'll prep for um I don't think uh, I'm saying under on the Brian Lamar getting a Twitter account. So are you telling me that you're not going to get a Twitter and also that maybe we've recorded the interview before we did this intro? Seconds ago. Unbeknownst to our listeners. That sounds like black magic. Uh, anything going on with you, Brian? Oh, gosh. Um, big time of year. Let's see. March Madness. Um, Kentucky pulled out a close one last night against Davidson. The fighting Steph Curry's, who p- had people on their team playing like Steph Curry. Um, Arizona lost. St. Patrick's Day is tomorrow. Yeah. What's going on? What about you? Uh, yeah, it's pretty wild. Uh, we've got the tournament is a big deal for me. Um, I was 14-2 and two yesterday. Yeah, I saw that. I think I was 13-3. and three. Yeah, not too bad. Um, if gambling was legal, it was an okay day. <laughs> 14 to 2 against the spread would be amazing. Yeah, well, I, I missed uh, the. Yeah. Um, so, moving on from there, um, we're actually doing. My wife is maybe feeling a little bit of guilt about um, me not being in Las Vegas this year for the tournament. So, she has de- designed this party for me to int- be an integral part of. Oh, like a March Madness party? Yeah. Um, tonight, now granted, it revolves around the Xavier game, which is her favorite basketball team. And, um, if there's any men in the audience that are over 30, you know that I don't have my own friends. <laughs> These are her friends and their husbands that we are com- joined by a common bond of, um, these crazy, um, accomplished females um, but we're having a party it's beer based um, 16 beers in a bracket style so beers go against each other um, and then you move on to the next round till there is a king of beers not Budweiser but a king of beers well as a researcher I've got to ask there's clearly like and I've never used this term before but there's going to be an intoxication bias in the later rounds right Agreed. Um, it averages out with the ounce wise, where everyone's going to have like probably seven full beers by the end. That's right. Um, and then, but I think we're most of us are in like either walking distance or Uber distance. Um, but the biggest part, like we we're actually, I actually thought a little bit market researchy when designing it, and that so there's two call it big breweries here in town, Madtree and Rheingeist. And both of them have their flagships of they're all kind of the same size. Like there's an IPA for Matrius Psychopathy, the IPA for Ryan Geist's Truth. There's Lyft and Cougar. Everything like everything kind of goes off of each other. Right. So we're doing blind taste tests for the first round. Wow. See who wins. So market researchy. I well, feel like I need to be there. there. Yeah, yeah. We'll see if we can make it through. I have to get maybe I have to get more beer. Well, I was like, you need 16 beers. Probably need three to four cans per beer. Oh my gosh. So I was like, okay, so that's a lot. But then I counted last night, and I have like 110 cans. I went overboard. Man, what a Friday night. 
Hey, some things happen in the suburbs, man. <laughs> uh, how about you? Anything going on for St. Patrick's Day tournament? Anything? Well, I haven't talked about this much on the podcast, but I'm really involved in our local government. There's only a few thousand people live in my township. In Ohio, we have townships. And we're having a little block party, and it's very controversial because we're, we're shutting down some streets. Um, if you live in Cincinnati, it's over there by the Porsche dealership, and it's just a it's a big ordeal. Brack. Well, it's right next to a Dollar General store, so oh, okay. Okay. Um, my neighborhood's very odd. But we're <laughs> shutting down the streets, we're having some beers. I don't have high expectations, but it's within walking distance. It's pretty great. Not nearly as fancy as you know chugging 16 cans of beer, but it'll be fun. All right, I'll take pictures of my part, too, uh, and maybe post them on the blog. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Um, our guests today are Dan Quirk and Joe Ridholm of Quirk's Magazine and Quirk's Conference. Um, and I think we're going to learn a lot about what they have to offer today, you know, just kind of the history. Um, you know, the Quirk's family established the magazine over 30 years ago, um, and then, you know, Patch on Joe became the editor in 1990, in 1988, and then Dan is, you know, second generation into this magazine and kind of developed the event. Um, what are you excited to learn about from the guys today? Well, I mean, as a researcher, it's amazing that we have a chance to just talk to these guys, that, you know, everybody, if you're a researcher, you've probably read the Quirks magazine, right? And there's so much insights and so much content in there. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have been published in there. My first, uh, actually, I didn't do a lot of the writing. We partnered with Northern Kentucky University with Dr. Levin. Um, but it's just a great magazine. I just want to hear the history of it and their viewpoints, especially on a conference. Um, I'd love to hear what it's like running a conference and what kind of the challenges are. Yeah, same here. I think uh, I know how I view conferences, and I've known it how when I was you know heavily into sales, how I viewed them. Now that I'm more on this like strategic side conference, how I view them, I'd love to know like and and I get a lot of feedback from you in the past. Like this is how a market researcher thinks about conferences, but how they put it together and how they kind of make those three attributes of you know from brand to full service firm to supplier and make them all happy along the way. I'm kind of interested in that. I also want to probe him a little bit on um, their fire code and just how safe people should feel at Quirks because it sells out so often. Um, or is that some kind of genius marketing play that they have? And I'm also going to try to stump Dan Quirk on three blogs that he's written. Let's get him. We're going to shut you down. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, thanks so much. Uh, now we're going to move over into the interview with Dan Quirk and Joe Ridholm. Joining us now are this week's guests, Dan Quirk and Joe Wrightholm. Uh, guys, how's it going? Good, how you doing? I'm doing very well. Yeah, great. Uh, I, I'll let Joe, I'll let you go ahead and start. If you could just introduce yourself and talk about like your your role at Quirks and, and just a little bit more about you. Oh, sure, yeah. Joe Wrightholm, I'm the editor of Quirks. been here since uh, 1988, hard to believe. <laughs> Coming up on 30 years in August, I think. So I'm mainly responsible. Uh, 
effectiveness, which would be more to the suppliers. Um, but doing a lot with trying to um, guess where the future of this industry is going and trying to position ourselves for that. Thank you both. Um, I guess we'll get started. Just uh, want to know a little bit more about the history of Quirks. Uh, Joe, can you tell us just kind of like the history? I, I know uh, you've been maybe you've been there a little bit longer. So, what's kind of the history of Quirks? Right. Well, Dan's uh, dad, Tom, was a marketing researcher um, of long, long standing, and had been running into problems historically, like trying to educate people who he was trying to interest in using marketing research about the various techniques, and he sort of, a light bulb went on, and he realized that there was a need for a magazine that educated people on how to use various techniques, um, places they could see research success stories, case studies, and techniques, and that kind of stuff, so he started the magazine, and I think it was 1986 was the first issue, and so I came aboard in 1988. Um, his idea was always to have the editorial be as... Um, objective as possible and not have self-serving articles from the marketing research companies touting their latest products and services, but rather something that had, you know, the editorial had integrity um, and so that people would keep coming back to the magazine because they would know that they're not, you know, being sold to all the time and that they would learn a lot of things. I mean, that was the one sort of thing that he imparted to me at the outset was that it has to be very practical information that researchers can apply on their day-to-day job and we weren't so much interested in the you know, the pontificating or the long-term vision of things, but more like what can, you know, tips for focus groups or how to do a, a better segmentation, something like that that the reader can use right away and that they would keep coming back to that. And if the readers showed up, then the advertisers would follow. So that's kind of been, you know, we did the magazine for a long time and then we kind of jumped into the event side, which, you know, Dan and Steve Quirk have been active in. But yeah, thanks. Thanks for the segue, um, Dan. Uh, yeah, as Joe kind of mentioned, you know, it starts out as this publication it's long, around for a long time, and really an essential tool. I know for me, when I first started in the industry, um, one of the first things that was given to me is kind of like a here, here you need to know the industry first was like eight volumes of quirks, like just going through the months of like read the, read this article, read the, you know know how to do an online focus group, know the difference between phone and online, those type of things. Um, but eventually it, it evolved into also being a conference. Um, what was kind of the plan around that, Dan? Um, when did the conference start? And I guess like what were the initial expectations versus where they are now? Sure. Well, so we started the conferences um, four years ago, so it just completed our uh, fourth year of conferences because we do them in the spring. And really, it, it, it truthfully stemmed somewhat out of um, the 2009 crash. What happened for us is, um, you know, when the crash happened, um, we saw advertising in the magazine um, decrease quite a lot. Um, and there's also a change in the marketplaces. People advertise on Facebook, Google, do other things. Um, but we knew we had this incredibly loyal and, and really deep list of 60,000 um, subscribers and a LinkedIn group of 50,000. And so we thought, okay, if, if we can't get as many research companies to market to this list, what can we market to this list? Um, and that's when we decided to um, pursue the events area. Um, our goal was to really take and do practical, hands-on, you know, um, sessions for um, our readers at the events, just like we do in editorial, and then to, if, you know, if we could do good quality content at a reasonable price, we knew we could get the client side researcher there, and, and um, if we could do that, we knew we then could um, sell sponsorship around it, just like the magazine. Um, so that's really how it started four years ago, 
the original, our original expectation was we thought if we could have um, 500 total attendees, we would be really good because that would have put us in the top three events in the United States. Um, in year one, um, we actually sold out about two months in advance um, and ended up with over 1,100 people there, which um, was awesome, except that we were exceeding the um, fire code limits of the space. Um, so that was a little um, freaky. Um, however, we've met with the fire marshal. We've used the same space. They have now allowed us to up the number of people because of the way that we um, flow it. But um, every year for the past four years in our New York event, we have sold out um, well in advance. Um, so that's awesome. Um, because of that, we started the West Coast event um, the last two years. And then for next year, um, our plan actually is to move the West Coast event to Chicago. Um, and then um, because of demand, we heard from readers um, overseas, we're doing a London event as well. Wow, that's great. Um, Dan, I don't know if you've heard, like we've made jokes in the past about, I think Quirks was great, the Quirks event was great in the marketing of it by saying the sold out, and we have made jokes about the fire marshal standing at the door, (laughs) if that's why you had to say sold out. So hearing you say that, it's like, all right, hey, that's true. Great, all right, makes sense. People don't know the fire fire marshal actually um, walks through the event and um, the most interesting thing is last year there was one booth we were required to take down because they said it was blocking a fire exit and it was our own booth. <laughs> so at least it was something that we hadn't sold. <laughs> oh, that's great. So. Uh, <laughs> so, so you mentioned you know next year there's going to be a London conference. Um, I guess what does that open you up to? Like what are kind of the growth goals um, from for going overseas? Yeah, um, well, you know, really what we really wanted to do was we wanted um, to really tap an untapped market um, in terms of our model. So our model is sort of a hybrid. You know, we charge very low fees for the client side to get in. Really, um, much like our magazine, we primarily make our um, revenue to cover the cost through the um, through the sponsorship and exhibition. Um, and there wasn't anything like that in... Um, the London market, this sort of hybrid between a conference and a trade show. Um, and, you know, really our goal was we heard, um, we were seeing that we were getting people in New York from Europe going, and we heard from those people that they would really like this event in Europe. We did also hear from many of our existing um, exhibitors. I think about 40% of them um, are already have um, made reservations for London, so we know um, they're interested in reaching that market. Um, and then, of course, there's all kinds of European firms that um, we have yet to um, tap that are interested in reaching our readership as well. Um, and for years now, since we've had um, an electronic version of the magazine, you know, we've been a readership that has been going international for at least a decade, if not longer, um, almost since the web, uh, since 1996. So. Um, that's really our goal is just to bring, um, take what we're doing in New York since we sell out every year and, and duplicate it as m- close as we can um, in Europe um, for that audience. Uh, yeah, that's great. That's a great goal and I think will, will really help. You know, it's not just uh, you know, growing the visibility of Quirks as an event and as a, a magazine, but I mean, the same way that Quirks helps me here and like going to the event helps me here. I know like primarily as a, I mean, obviously I'm a sample 
salesman at, at the core, right? Not to like doll up with my LinkedIn profile says about me, but I think it's great to like, there's great learning opportunities. And, and from everything I hear, you know, Quirks is more so about the connections that you make, the networking that you make, but then what you learn and what you learn from some of the sessions, because it really is different. Like the magazine, yep. it's different than just a bunch of pitches and a lot of, you know, um, disguise sales uh, strategies. So I think that'd be great to move over to London. Well, and, and Europe is also known a lot for their conferences tend to be very academic in nature. Right. Um, and so I think that will be a breath of fresh air is sort of our approach, which is just much more hands-on practical. You, you know, we want people to leave a session going, I can implement that tomorrow. Um, not, a, not, you know, some sort of PhD theoretical dissertation. Right. So. That's great. Um, Let's go back to the uh, the publication for a second, Joe. Um, I've always like like we said before, we're kind of, we're kind of fascinated always by the articles that are in there. And um, what do you look for, like when you're when people submit guest articles or or when you're looking to maybe fill kind of a, a knowledge void? What are you looking for in those articles? Right. Typically, I mean, each issue has a specific editorial emphasis, but we also run articles that don't fall into any of those categories. So as I always tell people, just anything, almost anything related to marketing research is of potential interest, um, especially, as I mentioned earlier, if it's on the practical side, if it's uh, tips and tricks and strategies type thing. Um, you know, we do, I do try to run some sort of thought pieces or sort of um, higher up view type things when they seem relevant or if they give people a new perspective on how to use a technique or something like that. But, um, you know, many of our articles are written by people on the vendor side, and I do have to stress to them, you know, to not mention their own company's products or services. Um, a lot of times we get articles in where people will pose a pro- or article ideas, people will pose a problem, and it just so happens that their company offers a solution to that problem. You know, those we reject out of hand, but I have to, that's a sort of frequent thing that I have to tell people. Like, eh, we're not interested in those kind of articles, but ones that are just basically take information that the reader or that the author has learned, you know, either a hard one or easily one, um, you know, ideas that people come up with that, you know, are very practical and hands-on and can help the reader basically, you know, function as a knowledge exchange. That's what I like to think of our editorial as a whole as sort of practitioner speaking to practitioner and helping everybody sort of raise the level of marketing research, you know, as an industry and as a practice. Yeah, the, the salespeople really are the worst. You got to keep an eye on them. <laughs> Try to slip something by. Uh, uh, Brian, you have a question for Joe and Dan. Well, well, first of all, a comment. My I've been a twenty-plus year researcher, and my first my first time I was published was in Quarks. That was about a year ago. So thank you to Dan and Joe. I I, I got it through their their editing process. Uh, but my question is for Dan. So, Dan, in preparing for this, I saw that you had written a, I mean, you've written a ton, and you're a good writer. I have a quiz for you. These are three blog topics that I found. Which ones are actual titles of blogs you've written? Are you ready for this? Oh, gosh. Okay. Okay, here we go. Number one, is Kim Kardashian a market research guru? Number two, focus group, should a beer bottle have breasts? And number three... Does God need to work on customer satisfaction? And I'm supposed to which one are uh, you, true? Do you remember writing? Titles? Did you write all those, or did I put a fake one in there? Um, I know the beer bottle has breasts is a real one. <laughs> um, 
I'm pretty sure the God one is. Actually, I think all three might be real. <laughs> I think I remember the Kardashian one, but I could be wrong on that. I think all three are real. <laughs> all three are real. Good job. Um, <laughs> thank you for the question. Is um, it doesn't look, maybe I missed it in my 15 minutes of prep, but uh, you should be writing more. You're a good writer. Those are interesting topics that add a little like you know humor and interest to market research, which is typically a boring topic. So um, that was really my commenting question. Oh, that's great. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, and I'm happy to hear. I'm happy to hear you say you think market research is can be a boring topic because that was one of the things when we did our event. As I said, I go to all these events, and you know what? Marketing research can be a boring topic, and it doesn't have to be because the results right. and the are so fascinating. And so when we did our event, and even our magazine, we try and have fun with it. It doesn't have to be dry and boring. So um, I'm, I'm glad you feel that way. <laughs> Well, that's always been one of my term, one of my things in terms of the editorial is, you know, our, we have obviously smart people who write the articles, but the industry is so full of creative, funny, interesting people, you know, what, from without, you might not think that, but I mean, we're all involved in trying to figure out why people do what they do, and we're all so idiosyncratic, and there's so much creativity in the industry, and we've tried to bring that into the magazine as much as we can. You know, I think some people feel like that our articles are not you know, as academic as they should be or something like that. But I mean, I try to balance the sort of the well-informed and academic style with also the, the creative style because there's a lot of, you know, funny, interesting people out there and it's fun to get their, their words into our pages. That makes sense. And I, and I agree. And I think the more, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast a lot, you know, market research, if you just look at it as like the stat type thing, like if you were to go out in the street and say to somebody, hey, what is, how exciting is market research? And they would think about numbers and, I think primarily when people think about market research, I think of like the focus group by the airport and like a bullet yeah. M&Ms, right? Yeah. But Clipboards the, right, all. right. But the people are so much more, are so much different. There's so many other different parts of market research, even like the fascinating, more innovative parts, you know, like uh, beyond the mall and the telephone types things, but uh, more like text analytics, I think is, is fascinating. I think if anybody can see, you know, or, or really pr- predicting and forecasting is really kind of a fascinating type thing. So, um, that ends the interview portion, and I'd love to kind of transition now into the research rant of the week. Uh, do both of you have one, or, or does one of you have one? I'm generally not much of a rant guy, but I know Dan one has one sort of preloaded, so I will yes. pass over to him. Whenever you're ready, Dan. Yes. Well, sure, sure. Well, well, my rant is has to do with um, our events. And um, what it is, is um, it goes down to what something you said earlier, which was about sales. And, you know, uh, my rant is I sometimes worry that the sales process in marketing research is going to kill the industry. Whenever we get our surveys back from the events, the number one thing we hear is that the salespeople are too aggressive, that they get bombarded with emails before the event, just spam, even events they're not going to, that um, are saying, come see us at this booth at this event. Um, in addition to that, when they're at the event, they said, you know, if somebody finds out they're a client-side researcher at General Motors or McDonald's or Ikea, that they basically get accosted. So often they feel they have to hide their company name. And then when speakers um, come up with a presentation, similar to what Joe said with writing, um, even if we've approved their presentation, gone through their PowerPoint, said everything's great, they seem to get up on stage and spend um, their 30-minute session doing a sell job, mm-hmm. and it's 
not only does it turn off the client side researcher, um, it's not, it's just, it's just not effective. Whereas if they can do a case study or, or talk as an expert about something, they're far more likely to be successful. And what I worry about is, um, you know, we've got a great event here and a lot of clients want to go here, but if we keep having the aggressive, um, salespeople, um, it will kill the event and ultimately kind of the industry. Um, so that's my rant. A hundred percent agree. Um, I agree in that salespeople, um, just the aggressiveness kind of, uh, spoils everybody, I think for, for what we're doing. And I, um, you know, I hate getting emails before a conference, um, because especially when I'm not somebody that buys necessarily, um, and somebody's asking me, they just, they haven't done the research to figure out is, am I the right person? They haven't qualified me. Um, and I've, you know, I mean, I think when I was younger, I definitely tried to go after and search for people, but I've seen people running down hallways after prospects. I've seen, you know, people getting aggressive and pushing people out of the way to try to get to prospects in the past. Um, and ultimately you lose credibility of what you're trying to say. Like you speak about in the, and when people are talking in conferences, you're creating a bias for the answer or kind of like what we said earlier, like, Hey, I want to talk about a problem that only I have the solution for, uh, which isn't good. I think you lose all your credibility there. Brian, anything to add there? No, I agree. I, I experienced this as well. And I have friends on the client side. And I, don't, I know I've seen them when they go to conferences, they flip their badge over or they hide their company name. And that's a big deterrent, I, I'm sure, for client side researchers going to these conferences to try to learn when they're barraged with people trying to meet with them. I mean, I get both sides of it. And, you know, the conferences wouldn't exist without the suppliers, like, like you mentioned earlier footing the bill for a lot of the sponsorship opportunities and attendees. So I'm sure it's, I'm sure that is a tough um, line to try to straddle when you're holding a conference. Yeah. Uh, well, we had some reader comments where people would say, or attendee comments, they would say, like, some of these salespeople act like I've got a procurement checkbook in my hand <laughs> and that I can just write a check for a project right there, and they're sort of mad when I don't sign on the dotted line. So I think that's something to keep in mind. It's like, you know, I'm not a salesperson, but relationship building and like working together establishing a bond so that maybe the you know the check from procurement can come later on as opposed to like right there you know on the on the show floor so <laughs> it reminds me of a joke like this was probably seven years ago i was going to a conference um it might have been like one of my first conferences i was going to and my sales manager at the time came up to me and he had these uh he had blank insertion orders on them <laughs> he came up to me for like six and he was he he came up to me, he goes hey uh just in case you close a bunch of dudes, here's some Blake insertion orders you could write it in. And it looks at him, I was like, seriously? He was like, no, but think about this moment, how dumb that seems that you would want to close somebody at a conference and expect them to buy from you right then and take that as like your approach when you go to this conference to kind of slow down a little bit. Uh, so that's great. That's awesome. Uh, now we're going to move into the, uh, the, more, the more interesting, the more entertaining, the more colorful part. Of the, con of the podcast, um, our four piece. Uh, so Dan and Joe, um, you guys can kind of rotate. If you both want to give one, if you're passionate about it, that'd be great. Uh, we'll start with the first P, which is present. So um, either one of you, uh, what's the best birthday present you've ever received? I think it was, um, I, I think I was 10 or 11. I got a Schwinn Apple Crate bicycle. That was like candy apple red, and it had the gear shifter in the middle bar, and the, the 
very small front wheel and it had like the um, sissy bar on the back as they used to call it. So that was, I wish I would have held on to that. I think it would be quite valuable, oh, but that was pretty great. great. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and I had a um, stuffed monkey that I received as a kid and I have, I still have it and I have traveled the entire world with this monkey and I have pictures of him in front of all kinds of the Eiffel Tower in Germany. Um, I've actually even brought him to trade shows before, so <laughs> he's been on the showroom floor at SMR. It's so. great. That's awesome. Um, moving on to the next piece, place. What place or day is your ideal setting or your, or your happiest place? I would probably say for me, I'm a big uh, baseball fan and a big Twins fan, Minnesota Twins, so probably Target Field on a beautiful summer baseball day. Oh, that's and, and for me, you know, we live in Minneapolis, and so for me, it would be um, uh, winter in um, Palm Springs, having <laughs> coffee, sitting in the sun. That's great. Oh, um, now moving on to purpose, um, who has driven you to success? So if you were given kind of an acceptance speech, who would you be thanking that got you where you are today? I would probably say, and I know this, not a, it's not on purpose, but I mean, I, I think Tom Quirkdam's that Tom because he gave me my start in the industry. I was fresh out of the journalism school, and he basically handed me the keys to a magazine, which is pretty much unheard of. And he sort of led by example more than you know sitting me down and telling me what to do. He was the first one in the office and the last one to leave every day, and was always involved. You know, when we had back in the old days when everything was done through the mail, we would, he was the you know there stuffing envelopes with the rest of us and no job was ever too too big or too small for him so I think just learning how to always be there for the company you know that nobody nobody is bigger than the company as a whole and he set a great example so I would, I would probably say Dan's dead time for that well that's great thanks yeah and I I would probably say my you know my father for sure um, but also we had a consultant that we used here um, Jack Tesmer was his name and crazy, he was like 83 years old, and he was the coolest guy I ever met at 83 years old. Um, and um, he really was instrumental in sitting us down, talking about strategy, and saying, you know, this is this is your company. What do you want to be doing, both in life, and then what do you, where do you see market opportunity, and kind of combining those two things. Um, so I have to give him huge credit for that. And unfortunately, um, he passed away of a, um, of a stroke. Um, well, we were, you know, not while I was with him, but while we were still using him. But I, you know, I think every day that he, uh, consulted with us. And you know, when you're 83 years old, he was doing it for the love of it, not to make money, not to, you know, not for his career goals. Um, so he was great. Ah, those are great stories, guys. Thanks so much for sharing. Um, the last P in our group is person and this is every week we give kind of a Ru Mount Rushmore so you know the top four things in some type of category and basically now that we're in the heat of the NCAA tournament um, we're going to ask you guys what are your top four NCAA basketball moments I would have to say it doesn't exist anymore because it was vacated but the 96-97 where the Gophers lost to Kentucky um, in the final four that was probably at least my personal top memory because I was actually at the game. I had some a connection at the University of Minnesota that I was able to get tickets for. And we drove down there and had a very fun whirlwind time. And then I suppose the next one would be Leitner's well, shot in 92. I hate Duke, but that was pretty fantastic. So I only have two. I don't have four, but that's 
That's about the, as much as I can muster. Yeah, the Bobby Jackson team, right? 96-97 Gophers? Exactly. Yeah. Sam Jacobson, Quincy Lewis, they yeah. each had a cup of coffee in the yeah. NBA, so. Yeah, and I have none. I don't really follow basketball. In fact, when I saw this on the agenda, I, I said, well, I know which of the Fantastic Four I like, but I don't know <laughs> <laughs> the final four. That's great. Uh, Brian, any moments from you in your Mount Rushmore? Well, I'm a big basketball fan, and the fact that he's mentioned Christian Leitner kind of made me cringe because um, I'm a huge UK fan. I've traveled a lot to tournament games, but at least he mentioned a win and a loss for Kentucky in his um, but I was at the 2012 title game in New Orleans, which is one of my biggest moments of my whole life. I actually drove down there the last minute, saw the UK win the title. I was at a 2014 game in Indianapolis where I saw Kentucky beat Louisville. It was an amazing game. And then I've been fortunate enough. To, I, I went to 15 straight SEC tournament um, tournaments, ended a couple of years ago. But just have a lot of – and this is on the Mount Rushmore because I got to spend a lot of time with my family and my dad. And we bonded over a lot of Kentucky basketball. So wow. I just have three. That's pretty good. Yeah. I, uh, my Mount Rushmore of moments, uh, 1992, I was nine. My dad took me down to Rupp Arena in Lexington, which was only like a half hour away from my house. And we watched, there was a regional going on, Sweet 16 games. And, uh, I got to see the Fab Five play when I was nine. It was their freshman year. So I saw, oh, you know, Jalen Rose, Chris Webber, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy King and Ray Jackson. Yes, got them all. Um, which is pretty big for me. Uh, my other one is 2007 Xavier basketball team. They made it to the Elite Eight. They lost Ohio State with Greg Oden and all that, whatever. Um, that was just really big time for local basketball here. Um, my next one is 2009. Uh, my buddy of mine somehow scored these radio seats from like his dad that worked in were for clear channel radio. It's now, you know, it was that iHeart radio. Um, and we drove up, we got the tickets at like four o'clock. We drove up. I called, I was working here. I called Mike. I was like, Hey, I, I got to take these days off. He was like, do it for basketball. Uh, so we drove to Syracuse in the middle of the night. So it was like 13, 14 hours to get there. We had seats three rows, five rows behind the Kentucky bench. That was the John Wall to Marcus Cousins year. We won the first game against Cornell. We lost the second game against West Virginia. And uh, we sat uh, right next to Drake on the second day, which is really weird. Oh, wow. Um, bizarre story. But that was one number three. My last one was uh, I'll never forget this because it's so weird and random. But I go to Vegas every year typically for the tournament. This is my first year off in a long time. And last year, I took a buddy of mine who had never gone out before and he would just, he just didn't get it. Like, why do you go to Las Vegas? Like, why do you do that? Like, what's the big deal? And it was the first game on a Friday. So, you know, out there, it's a 930 tip off in Michigan against Oklahoma State. Michigan was up four. The spread was two. Oklahoma State hit a half-court shot at the buzzer that was meaningless. They still lost by one, but they covered, and everyone went nuts. And I was like, that is why you come to Vegas for the tournament. That's, you know, if gambling was legal, it's the best time ever. So, there's my, my moment. Uh, but now let's jump into the non-research round of the week. So anything makes either of you angry, basically, is what this time is. Um, and I'll let either of you, Dan or Joe, or both of you take it from here. Sure. Dan, have you got mine one? Be, think. Yeah. Uh, mine would just be, I recently, I'm just like, I kind of wish Twitter was just done. I'm tired of Twitter. To me, it's an echo chamber. Both within the industry, it's just research. 
like suppliers talking to suppliers, but even in the um, world at large, it, it, um, I find it not helpful to anybody. Um, it seems to be used, a lot of people want to use it to get famous and uh, we're willing to do anything and have a voice and I'm not sure everybody should have a voice um, or at least not one that's not um, somewhat censored. So, yes, my, I'm tired of it. I'm with you. Protect people from themselves. Let's get it out. <laughs> uh, well, thank you both. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Joe, for the time today and for answering all of our questions. Um, anything you guys want to want to plug before we go? Um, gosh, uh, just uh, I would say to suppliers, just uh, sell by uh, good case studies and good technique articles. And uh, you know, um, hey, if, if quirks can help. Um, We'll do what, what, what we can. Great. And anything? Yeah, I would uh, say, too, on the article yeah. side, we're always looking for articles. So, you know, especially, like I said, a lot of them are written by vendors, and I've got, and, you know, scads of great vendor authors over the years who kind of get the whole thought leadership, you know, like Dan was saying, instead of just talking about how great your product is, maybe do, you know, have a case study about how it worked for a client. You know, that can really be an effective way of getting your point across without hitting people over the head with a sales sledgehammer. So, you know, but we're, my door is always open. I'm always looking for articles, so feel free to reach out. And I will say what makes us unique is we have three professionally trained editors who are journalism majors, and actually Joe leads our editorial, and he gets to make all of those decisions independent even of me. So he's making all the decisions based on the merit of the article. It has it has nothing to do with spend by the company or anything like that. He has complete control. So we're old school in terms of editorial that way. Um, it is completely uh, on a professional and up and up basis. So. Oh, great. And uh, how can they re- how can they reach out to either of you? What's the best way? Sure. I'm just my email is just Joe J O E at quirks dot com. And I'm Dan at Quirks.com, D-A-N at Quirks.com. That's great. Well, thank you, Dan. Thank you, Joe, uh, for your time today and just getting us, you know, allowing us to get a little bit, know a little bit more about you guys, the history of the magazine, the history of the event itself. And uh, we look forward to hearing more from you guys in the future. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you again to Dan Quirk and Joe Ridholm for being our guests today on the IntelliCast podcast. Um, as always, please reach out to us if you have any questions, suggestions, or want to be a guest at IntelliCast at emi-rs.com. Um, follow us on Twitter, EMI underscore research, or myself personally at Adam Jolly on Twitter. Um, moving forward, Brian, anything else to add? Anything that you thought was great from the interview today? Um, I, I just loved hearing how funny they were. I thought they were interesting and funny, and you know, I don't expect it. Maybe I have low expectations of other researchers, but they seem like just normal guys having fun, loving their job. Yeah, I think it's pretty – if you could work somewhere for so long and still love it and love the people that you're in, you know, somebody like Joe that's worked with a couple different quirk people, you know, and now, like, I think that's really cool. Yeah. Um, all right, that does it for us this week. Thanks so much for listening, and um, as always, we'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.